Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 274th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the funniest, smartest, and most altogether unusual guys in Hollywood. A man who got into animation as a little kid, followed his passion, and at the age of just 24, became the youngest executive producer in the history of television, when his show Family Guy was ordered to series by Fox. Over the 20 years since the show went on the air, it has been canceled and renewed twice, he created other animated series for the network, including American Dad, Border Town, and The Cleveland Show. He became a film director with 2012's Ted, which, until recently, was the highest-grossing R-rated comedy not adapted from pre-existing material. He hosted the 85th Academy Awards, and he created and starred in a live-action sci-fi dramedy series for Fox that just wrapped its second season, The Orville. I'm talking, of course, about Seth MacFarlane. Over the course of our conversation in the Orville Writer's Room in a nondescript office building in Beverly Hills, the 45-year-old and I discussed how he first fell in love with and started creating animation, how close he came upon graduating from college to pursuing a career in music instead of one in Hollywood, what inspired Family Guy and the iconic characters he originated and continues to voice on it, including Peter Stewie and Brian Griffin, what really went down at the Oscars the night he sang the song We Saw Your Boobs, why, after the success of his animated shows and the TED films, when he could do just about anything, he decided to make and star in a Star Trek-like show set 400 years in the future about a divorced captain and his first officer who still have to work together, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Seth, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Kent, Connecticut, and my father was a teacher, and my mother was in college guidance. And I go back and try to read everything I can find from the beginning about you, and it sounds like, not surprisingly, animation, cartoons were really early interest, but like, what was the first catalyst for that? Well, my parents saved drawings from when I was about two years old you know, Woody Woodpeckers, Fred Flintstones, Bugs Bunnies. And I would see things on television and try to recreate them. Mm -hmm. You know, I was fascinated by the animation medium. I grew up with Hanna-Barbera in their prime, and mm -hmm. I was just very, very curious about how they got those damn things to move. Right. And there was very little information at the time. Yeah. There was, I think, one book they found that was written by a professor at the college that I eventually went to. Yeah. 
But other than that, it was kind of a mystery. So I was drawn to it pretty much from day one. And so from watching that stuff came the interest in animation. Is that also where sort of a sense of humor came from? Or were there other people around the house? Like, what was that about? Yeah, I mean, my mother's side of the family is really where the sense of humor came from. My mother had a sense of humor that would make any millennial blush. (laughs) (laughs) I read about one dog incident. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there was that one. And, you know, my cousins were hilarious. My cousins, Mark and Shep, in the genesis of Peter Griffin. Yes. And they're, you know, very New England meat and potatoes sense of humor. So I grew up around all that. Right. Who was Walter Crouton? That was the first comic strip that I did for our local newspaper in my hometown, the Kent Good Times Dispatch. As you can tell, nothing really happened <laughs> in that town. <laughs> it but was you were really all just good times. <laughs> How does it come about, though? You're nine years old and they're paying you to draw for the first time. I don't remember how it emerged. I don't remember who made the first phone call. You know, it was such a small town that, you know, everybody knew everybody. And the fact that I drew these cartoons was relatively known. I mean, there's like 10 people in the town. <laughs> but somehow it came to the attention of the editor of the local newspaper. And, yeah, they paid me five bucks a week mm-hmm. to do, you know, it was a weekly paper. So five bucks a pop to do these cartoons. Five eventually became 10. Right. I did it for Almost a decade, I think. And this was also your first brush with controversy, right? Yes. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. When I was a kid, I was very confused, fascinated, and maybe a little creeped out by communion. Like, I was in a church choir, and I would go to church on Sundays. We weren't a religious family, but liked the community, and the choir leader was a friend of the family. You know, it was like music was important. Right. But when I would sit through these services, there were things that just seemed so friggin' bizarre <laughs> to me. And one of them was communion. And I remember like turning to my mom in the middle of services and going, is that, they said it's his body. Is that actually his body? That's disgusting. <laughs> and like, that's his blood. Right. They're drinking, you know, it, it just didn't seem yeah. like something that was in the best interest of one's health. <laughs> if one were trying to avoid, you know, hepatitis and whatnot. <laughs> but I, you know, so I did this one panel strip that showed a guy, it was Walter Crouton, taking communion and asking for fries with that. <laughs> you know, I was nine years old. That was what comedy was. And you got blowback. And the local priest sent me a note that said, shame on you for insulting the almighty God and those who love him. Oh, my gosh. That's a <laughs> nine-year-old. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah, an excuse for a priest to write a letter to a nine-year-old. Right. <laughs> so I guess the other of the three key interests that seem to have tracked throughout your whole life, there's the animation, there's the comedy, and there's the music. So yeah. with music, it sounds like it actually came by way of the comedy. It comes back to this guy. You said it's your cousin, Shep? Well, the music, I suppose, came from my father's side. He was the musician of the family, and my sister sings as well, and you know, we both inherited that ability and that love. For, yeah. you know, my parents raised me on the classic musicals. They were a bit more kind of folk then I kind of gravitated towards more orchestral yeah. stuff, but they were, you know, very much in the Peter, Paul and Mary, you know, Rita Coolidge set. Right. Music was a big part of my childhood. Film scores in particular? Yeah, was very, very interested. I was a big John Williams fan from the day that I was old enough to understand that that was special. Yeah. And yeah, just gravitated to film scores. I mean, it was really the only thing that was being offered that was new, that was challenging. Yeah. I mean, I could listen to big band music and hear some pretty complex arrangements. You know, I was too young to really appreciate classical music, but Uh film scores were complex and rich and textured. And, you know, on the radio, I was hearing the same, you know, crap that the rest of us were hearing. And so, you know, it was fun stuff, but it wasn't really musically challenging. It was pretty simplistic by comparison. And so I would listen to these John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith scores, and it was serious shit. Yeah. 
So we know what you were doing in your early years with the animation, with Walter Crouton and all that. Was the comedy and the musical stuff manifesting itself in school or doing you know musical theater? Or what were you up to with that? Yeah, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of, again, the choir director at our local church organized like a local theater group. And we did a lot of, very odd for this young, but we did a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan. Really? Yeah, did a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan. I got really familiar with that stuff. And I'm happy I did it because it was probably good for the brain at you know nine or ten to be doing that kind of patter and that gave way to high school and you know the rogers and hammerstein shows i think we did carousel anything goes the cole porter musical so it was a really nice variation of different shows so this might catch some people who were not already familiar with your interest in all this by surprise because i think the kind of reflexive thing for people who know you from animation or comedy or whatever they probably think you were the jock cool kid or whatever in high school. It sounds like, I mean, I read about one thing where you recreated the bridge of the Starship Enterprise in your house <laughs> in high school with cardboard. Is it possible that both things could be true? It's a very small town <laughs> and not a whole lot to do in the summer. Yeah, my sister was away for the summer in Japan, so I used her room to, I mean, like recreated is a real stretch. Right. It was like three pieces of cardboard okay. and some Christmas lights. Okay. But I've always found it amusing that people associate family guy with this frat guy humor it's like i went to an art school it's like first of all how many comedy writers do you right, know right. who were frat guys right, it's like right, these right. are the betas like these are not the alphas do your fucking homework right, right. before you make that assumption no i was very introverted mm-hmm. i loved doing shows i loved being on stage you know that part but mm-hmm. once you know when i got off the stage i was very introverted a little shy yep. and just preferred to be alone you know, I had my small group of friends that I was close to, but I wasn't really a big party goer, certainly was not an athlete. Yeah. It sounds like a major moment for you and anyone else who would have been around your age who, you know, paid attention to animation would have been something that came around, I guess, when you were in high school heading towards college, and that would be The Simpsons, which I don't know prior to that how many, if any, animated series could have catered to both children and adults. So I wonder for you, how impactful was that? Very impactful. I mean, it was prior to the emergence of The Simpsons, I really wanted to be a Disney animator. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, eventually I got there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Only a couple months ago. <laughs> a couple acquisitions. But I guess technically I've yeah. now achieved both goals. But yeah, no, Disney was having their second golden era, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those films were hugely popular. And they had not only reinvented the animated film, but reinvented the classic musical, the film musical. I mean, really, nobody was doing that. You know, in the 80s, there were a handful of them, but by the 90s, there really wasn't anything. So I was really drawn to that, but I was also doing stand-up on the side. Starting in college? Yeah, starting in college. And those two things didn't really go hand in hand. I loved getting laughs from adults. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as a cartoonist or an animator, like, there wasn't really... If you were working in cartoons, you were working in kids' shows, and right. you couldn't do the jokes that were really funny, Right, I guess is the best way to put right. it. The things that make you laugh. Yes. And then here comes The Simpsons that completely rewrites the rule book and flings the door wide open for people to play on the same playing field as primetime sitcoms and work in animation. And so it was an absolute career trajectory mm-hmm. shift when that show came out for me. I, I abandoned the whole Disney idea, and I remember thinking, God, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I want to do one of these things. Well, so I guess you mentioned that you started stand-up in college, and you referred to the art school. This is RISD in Providence. What were you majoring in there? What was your kind of—well, you've said that originally when you started there, you're thinking— Disney animator, but yeah. So, what was the focus while there, and then 
what was the goal at the time you graduated? The focus was animation. I was a film major, but specifically within the department, you could either focus on live action or animation. It was the option was open. It was kind of a unique situation because I had a job offer before I graduated, and it was because Hanna Barbera, which was still in existence as its own entity at that time, had just begun this program called What a Cartoon. It was a series of seven-minute shorts. Their goal was to take animation out of the hands of the writers and put it back in the hands of the artists, which, looking back, it's a happy collaboration of both results in the best product, I Mm -hmm. think. But they were looking for green, fresh, untried artists who they could groom to create shows. The thought of moving to Los Angeles was terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been in Connecticut in a small town and Providence, which is a relatively small city. Picking up and moving to L.A. was petrifying, but the offer was just too good to pass up. So I got out of college and a couple months later, I was moving out to L.A. to start this job. I want to just come back, though, to how that even happened, because there's something that I guess was the tip of a pretty important iceberg, I guess, in your life. And that would have been life with Larry, because this is what Hanna-Barbera was interested in, right? Can you explain what that was the first seed of? It was really a rough, very rough version of Family Guy in a lot of ways. RISD was really great about not flinging you out into the wild without any kind of support <laughs> after you graduated. Right. They were very active in distributing a lot of these films. RISD sent my film to Hanna-Barbera, uh-huh. which is huge. I mean, yeah. like for college to do that. like They were massively instrumental in that connection. And your film, though, I guess, like a lot of other student films, would have been shown to other students while you were still at yes. RISD. And you knew you had something, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. They were wonderful people. and They were honest and critical. And at the same time, once they were convinced that you wanted to do what you wanted to do, they would do things like send your film yeah, to Hollywood. Yeah. Initially, the reaction was, you know, Seth, this is your one chance to do that personal film mm-hmm. that you really want to do that is all yours. And I feel like you're squandering the opportunity on what is essentially a lot of bathroom humor. Right. Larry, though, who is yeah. Larry in this? Larry is a predecessor to Peter Griffin in a okay. lot of ways. And They plopped this thing in the senior film show amidst all of these much more expressive, quote-unquote, high art (laughs) films. And it got laughs. I was getting nice big laughs. And so I think at that point they figured, all right, he's got something in mind that seems to be working. And 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 even back then there was also a talking dog. There was a talking dog, yeah. And were some of the other things, not yet like Stewie or something, wouldn't have yet been? Stewie did not exist yet. The concept of the cutaways existed. I mean, and again, that was something that The Simpsons had used every once in a while. And it was something that I felt was a really interesting, for animation, Mm -hmm. was a really interesting thing to kind of lean into a little more. And so I kind of took that and made it, even in that student film, made it a staple of what I did. Because you look at one of my other favorite pieces of IP was The Far Side. Yeah. The Far Side was brilliant and in many ways was the inspiration for what eventually became the cutaways on Family Guy. These little one frame stories that you really can only do in that medium. Right. Well, so had that Hanna-Barbera opportunity not come along, is it true that you, I guess where you probably would have ended up was Boston Conservatory of Music? Yes. It would have been the end of animation. Yeah. Well, I think animation would have survived just fine. Well, for for you. For For me, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'd applied to their graduate program for musical theater and been accepted. And the Hanna-Barbera offer was, again, I was was presented with a choice, and there was just no way I was going to turn that down. And so for them, you move out to L.A., you're, I guess, for the first time interacting with voice talent, including 
Adam West, who would yes. come back in. Yeah. And then what were some of the things they had you doing at Hanna-Barbera? You know, it's funny. At Hanna-Barbera, aside from my own project, my seven-minute project, once yeah. I was done with it, I was the only I ever did voices on there. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it was very clicky. They had their set of people. I wanted to do more. Well, that's one of the things I want to ask you, though. So, like, did you kind of grow up knowing in the same way you knew you were talented with animation? Did you know you were good at voices, or was that just came along I, because of I the I don't animation? know that I knew whether I was good or not. Yeah. I just knew that I knew what I wanted out of the performance. Right, and right, it was right. a lot easier for me to go into the booth and just do it right. than it was to try and get it out of, you know, another actor. And I did like it at the time. And again, I wanted to do more, but it was just very hard to break in, even within the company that I was working for. So right. once I finished Larry and Steve, which was the short that I did, yeah. I was a writer. I mean, I did a little bit of storyboarding, but I think they recognized, okay, this guy's a better writer than he is an artist. (laughs) And did they do anything with Larry and Steve? As I recall, there was some talk of maybe doing it as a series for Cartoon Network. It was around the same time that there was some interest from Fox in the student film. And so I do remember at one point being presented with a choice. Okay, if I stick around, it's a pretty good bet that Larry and Steve, that I'm going to get a series at Cartoon Network. Mm -hmm. Or I can do this thing for Fox which may not go anywhere. It's just a pilot presentation. And then I've kind of blown it. I've shot my wad and there's no coming back. Well, with Fox, though, so you're working at Hanna-Barbera. How does Fox even find out about you? The head of development at the time at Hanna-Barbera was brand new around the time this happened. He had come in and this guy, Adam Shapiro, Mm -hmm. who had wanted to take Hanna-Barbera back into the prime time business. And he said, this student film years is kind of the most likely candidate i want to take you over to fox and introduce you to some people mm-hmm. and you know at the time i'd never been on an actual studio lot right you know i was like hell yeah yeah there was some comment he made as he was directing me where to go over on pico <laughs> and he was like there's gonna be a big mural over there it's gonna be uh, uh buck rogers fighting swords with captain kirk you know <laughs> and i get there and i'm like oh it's star wars right, right, that's right, what it is right, that right. was that that's what he was <laughs> Trying to communicate. And you were there to meet with their heads of alternative comedy. Yeah. What did they see this kind of crazy idea that, yeah. of the New England guy with his talking dog and yeah. whatever else? And what do they say to you? You're like 23, 24? I, I was probably 23 at that time. Mm-hmm. And I had a packet with me that had a layout. Of, the Stewie had emerged by that point. Mm-hmm. So I had you know the other characters' right. sketches of them and descriptions right. and story ideas, but that was about it. But the only thing that was on film was the student project. So I went in, pitched it. They said, we'll give you a budget of like 40 grand to do a pilot. And, you know, keep in mind now it's, what is it, like 800 grand now for the cost to make these things. So so I said, yes, yes, I'll figure out a way to do it. I spent six months, you know, because I was working at Hanna-Barbera still, but I would go home and and animate and, you know, utilize my degree. And it was a little serendipitous because at the time Warner Brothers... It was Turner and Time Warner that were merging. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of free time where nobody really knew what to do with a lot of us. Like, they knew they had to have a talent pool there to make shows. And, you know, they needed animators. They needed writers. But there was a lot of downtime. Right. So that did help. And, you know, at the end of six months, I brought it in. Shell of a man. (laughs) (laughs) Hadn't slept in half a year. and, And I remember falling asleep at the wheel and almost driving off the road when I was delivering the pilot. Yeah, I was just spent. Oh, my God. But I was hell-bent on making the most of this opportunity. So I turned it in, and they liked it, and they said, yeah, we want to make a series. So by that time, I was 23 or 24. Youngest EP in television, right? That's what they tell me. And just on a day-to-day basis, how did your life change? I think I read about a a call to your mom that would have been cool. No, it was my mother who called and said, oh, I heard your show got picked up. (laughs) And I I hadn't heard. (laughs) 
How did she know? So she looked up online. Oh, she, she was God. like, I guess what, back then passed for the internet. Right, right, right. And yeah, she was right. But the biggest change that I can remember is that I was able to get a credit card. <laughs> no one would give me a credit card. And literally overnight, I signed this overall deal with 20th Century Fox. And suddenly I can get a credit card. Oh, my God. I was in college and the credit card people right. came to campus and people were signing up. I was like, hey, look at these right, suckers. Right, right. There's no way I'm getting. I know what happens. Right. You go into debt instantly right. and you're in the hole. No way. Not this guy. I'm walking away, you know, it's like the guy in Vegas who walks away with right, five bucks. Right. Like, I'm, this is, <laughs> recognize the value of money. But what I stupidly didn't realize that, oh, no credit is worse than bad credit. When I got out of college right. and got into my 20s, I had no credit card. That's I was crazy. paying cash or checks for everything. And well, that was thank last, God for family. Last time, I guess that was the problem. But can you explain their original vision for what this would be for? It sounds like they were planning to do with your program. I don't know if it was yet called Family Guy what the Simpsons were originally going to do for the Tracy Ullman show, just right. as like little yeah. inserts, right? For Mad TV, yeah. You were going to be for Mad TV. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they were using the Tracy Ullman model, and there were going to be little inserts for Mad TV. And what they had me do was, and actually, God, you've done your research <laughs> and your jogging stuff in my memory that I guess that's what journalists used to do, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually look things up beforehand. That's and, true. You know, what a breath of fresh air you are. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. It was four segments that we're going to air on Mad TV as little, like, three-minute pops. But they had to link together to form one story, which would be the pilot to right. see if the show... That's right. Yeah, <laughs> to see if the show was good enough to go to series. Right. And so was it ever used in that way, or it was just... No, they were enthusiastic enough about it that they said, we're just going to go straight to series with this. So we're coming up now on 20 years. I guess we've passed the actual 20-year mark since... Family Guy first premiered after the Super Bowl in 99. Yeah, January. How exciting was that? And at the time, were you anticipating a big audience or, I mean, because I think what people may not realize, because the fact that you're still here 20 years later and it's popular and people are enjoying it, everybody knows about it. They may not remember or know what those first like three years were like. So I wonder if you can just take us from it goes on the air and then what those next three years entailed. It was the 90s, so it was still, you know, economically, it was a very different experience than it would be now. I mean, I remember Fox flying a whole mess of their talent and executive producers on the Fox jet to see the Super Bowl, which they were broadcasting that year, which is something I can't imagine (laughs) anyone, like, nowadays, forget it, lucky to get a ticket. (laughs) Um, And I remember having a little portable TV Mm -hmm. with a little antenna. Mm -hmm. That on the bus that took us all back from the Super Bowl after it was over, I was sitting in one of the seats watching the premiere on this little tiny screen. Oh, my God. And it was, you know, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And I had no expectations because I didn't have anything to compare it to. Right. Part of me thought, hey, this could be a massive, massive hit. Mm -hmm. And then another part of me thought, I could be back working uh, my old job tomorrow. I I don't know what's going to happen. Well, so it seems like as would be expected when you premiere right after the Super Bowl. Initially, the ratings were great. But was it legitimate when they would cite in the fall of 2000 and then again in the spring of 2002 that the ratings were the reason that they pulled you? And also just like it's unheard of that you would get canceled once, Mm -hmm. brought back, canceled again, brought back. That period of ups and downs, how did you process that? It was my first time doing this. I didn't have the advantage of having worked on other shows and having a sense of how all this worked. I mean, I had to learn half-hour primetime writing as I went along. Luckily, you know, I'm somebody who does like to surround myself with people who I know are 
experts at their job right. who can make the overall project better. You know, I met with some EPs and there was a guy, David Zuckerman, who I really sparked to uh -huh. and he helped me develop the show. And he'd come off of King of the Hill and I learned the basics of that style of writing from him and from the writing staff. Right. But I really had no clue. You know, to me at the time, it was like, oh, it just got to be joke, 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 right, joke, right. as long as people are laughing. Right. And the idea of story structure was seemed so peripheral. <laughs> it's just so tangential to right. what was really important. So that was very educational. You know, that first three years was, again, there was nothing to compare it to. When we got canceled the first time, it wasn't technically a cancellation. The outgoing president of Fox was kind of done with it. And the new incoming president said, hey, wait a minute. There's actually Gail Berman yeah. who came in and said, I think there's still life to this thing. She picked it up for another season. Even she couldn't save it by the end of season three. <laughs> and it was gone. It was gone for two years. But at the time, it, you know, I was never left out in the cold. 20th was very clear at the time that they said, listen, we like you. We like what you do. We like your voice. We don't want you to leave. We're not going to do any more with Family Guy. It's dead. It's gone. Forget about it. But we want you to create something else for us. And so I developed a pilot, a multicam pilot called Simon with Jack Kenny and Brian Hargrove. Uh -huh. And that didn't go anywhere. And by that time, my deal was almost up. And it was also around that time that the Family Guy DVDs yes. were selling really well. And the reruns on Adult Swim were doing really well. And so just as I was about to be out of a job, I think the way Gary Newman worded it was, we kind of want to sneak this thing back into production. Could you believe that? And I mean... I was watching what was happening and right. watching the popularity. And so there was some talk of maybe Adult Swim buying mm -hmm. it. So I knew there was a possibility that it might come back. And Adult Swim was a component. Yeah. You know, I think the structure was it'll air on Fox and then it'll go to Adult Swim like a week later. And they'll kind of share the costs of production. I don't really know how that works. Right. That part puts well, me to would sleep. You, what but, would you have done if they had just said, all right, you know, rest in peace? I don't know. Who knows? I would have hopefully wound up somewhere. <laughs> I probably would have written on somebody else's show. Somebody else's show. Yeah. Can we just briefly go through, you know, some of these characters are really beloved at this point, And I just wonder how you arrived at the characterization, the vocalization of, mm -hmm. for instance, Peter Griffin. I grew up around that dialect that, you know, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, just all over my family. Right. And I was friendly with the security staff at RISD. And I think at one point, I can't remember why. It was like to bookend a talent show that RISD was doing in their theater. Right. And they said, can you make like a video or something to kind of ramp up the crowd at the beginning? And so I made a fake cop show <laughs> starring the security staff at my college. And, you know, they're cool guys. And a couple of them had that really thick, you know, just real thick Rhode Island, you know, you know, this thing going on. It was just just no question where they're from. And there was, in some cases, very little self-editing mechanism. Right. But, you know, a kindness and a right. good-heartedness that just kind of made it all okay. And you have fun with it. You laugh at them. And, you know, some of the shit that came out of their mouths would maybe be not so <laughs> acceptable from another type of person. But you're like, ah, they clearly mean so right. well. And so, you know, the voice of Peter Griffin was very much drawn from one of those in particular, guys yeah. in particular. Yeah. So I guess Stewie Griffin, who... If there's somebody listening who doesn't know, Peter was the man of the house. Stewie is this diabolical baby who wants to kill his mother. That comes back to your love of music. Yeah. Yeah. I was a big fan of film musicals. I loved My Fair Lady. Just Rex Harrison's characterization of Henry Higgins just remains so hilarious in its obliviousness. 
Yeah. Stewie began as, I guess, an impression of Rex Harrison. And is there, when you want to get into character as Stewie, is there something of Rex's that... There's a couple of, you know, there's the damn, 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 you know, I've grown accustomed to her face. (laughs) There's a couple of lines that, yeah, if I'm warming up, you won my bet, you presumptuous insect, I won it. (laughs) What did you throw those slippers at me for? (laughs) You know, these, (laughs) just... Clipped fast Just, like, no question. How no about uh, what this character is. Now, Brian, the talking dog of all characters, is the one that is yeah. most that's, you, right? Let me just give myself a break. But, you know, Peter came first. The voice of Peter came first. And in classic comedy duo vaudevillian tradition, he's just the opposite. Right. You know, the opposite of the big, bombastic, lovable, but not so br- Exactly. Not so bright, you know, guy over here right. is the soft-spoken, quiet, reserved, right. critical, intellectual Absolutely. Well, so another thing you've done, not just with Family Guy, but with the offshoots, which and others, which we'll come to in a moment, is brought sort of show-stopping music back into animation or into animation. I don't know if it ever was there before where, you know, you've talked about the importance of showmanship is the word you seem to keep coming back to and why that that, whether it's a opening theme song or a parody, I think starting as early as season one, with Family Guy, there's something kind of playing off of Annie. Is it just a way to kind of combine your interests, your loves? Yeah, I mean, certainly animation is the only medium that I can think of that combines all of those different artistic disciplines. It's drawing, it's acting, it's music, mm-hmm. it's all these different things, you know, bundled into one. And prior to that, you know, The Simpsons had shown very clearly what an orchestra can do for an animated series. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, we took that and ran with it. And I don't think you could do those musical numbers and sustain them without a live orchestra. I think even if the audience doesn't know that what they're hearing is live music, you know, a live symphony, basically, on a subconscious level, I remain convinced that it captures their attention more. So you'll literally do it with a full orchestra when we see one of those numbers. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Orville this past, you know, we've had a few episodes this season where we used a 95-piece orchestra for a, yeah, it makes a huge difference. How often, you know, Family Guy is obviously very funny, but no holds barred humor. How often do you hear from people that you guys target, you know, kind of bitching about that? And then also, how often do you hear from... I don't know if it would be network standards and practices or the FCC or whoever, who, by the way, you guys went after in the yeah. fourth season, yes. the episode PTV. Very funny. Do you know by this point just what you can get away with or do you still get pushback? I haven't dealt with that on Family Guy since about 2011 or so. Okay. And when I left to do Ted yes. was when I stopped. You know, I'd run the show for close right. to 10 years right. and I was fine <laughs> passing it on. So they're in an awkward place because... You have streaming shows, you have the internet, you have all these things where standards just don't really apply. It's like right. we've moved on. Like nobody's taken aback or freaked out by the word fuck anymore. Right. They're just not. Right. But the broadcast networks are this holdout. They're still beholden to the rules of the FCC, which are relatively arcane compared to the rest of the culture. Right. And, you know, there's certainly no political incentive to advance that. It's easier to just kind of remain conservative and keep your head down but it's hard for a show to compete in a lot of ways i think the guys that are running the show have done a very good job at walking that line but i've never had any direct dealings with the fcc my dealings with broadcast standards you would think would be contentious it's exactly the opposite and it's it's not because we fought so hard Mm -hmm. it's because we have a good relationship that they've been willing to take those risks with us did you guys 
when you were more involved with Family Guy, do things like I've heard about they would do in the golden age of Hollywood where you throw in three things that you know they're never going to let yeah. you use. I think so that Beavis and Butthead used to do did that. Did that too? Yeah. yeah. We never did that. I don't know how you have the time. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you're barely making your day right. just getting the jokes done. They're going to be on right. air. Right. It does seem like a good idea, yeah. but at the end of the day, I don't know really how effective it is yeah. because if you know, you say, like, well, can't we keep the shit? We cut the fuck. <laughs> it's like, no, you still can't still say can't, shit. Yeah. Well, one last follow-up about that stuff. I don't know if this is correct, but I saw one thing that indicated your overall deal with Fox ends in June. Is that correct? Like May, June, May, something June. like that. Only ask because I wonder how appealing the idea is of being at a place where you can just say or do anything you want. I mean, I believe that your producing partner on Ted was Scott Stuber, yeah. who's now running things over at Netflix. Do you look at people that do stuff for a place like that? And this is not to say anything about what your actual plans are, but do you envy somebody that can just do whatever they want? You know, it's a complex question because there's a broadness to network TV that I think we're seeing the last gasp of that dominance of reach. But in a lot of ways, it is still there. You can reach a lot of eyeballs. There are still only a few of them compared to all of these streaming services. I don't know. It just depends on the project. The project dictates what the platform is. You know, I could be at a streaming service and do a show that to me feels like a broadcast show. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm going to want it to be. Or the reverse. I mean, it really depends. The Orville is something that it's very different than Family Guy yeah. and that it doesn't require. I think we've gotten like one broadcast standards note all of season two. <laughs> it's just not that kind of show. Right. It goes for something different. Right. The project and the story and the tone tells you where it wants to be. Right. So I guess in the last year, you would have been intimately involved with Family Guy, or the year before you kind of began to focus on other things a little more, was 2009, which was also the first time in 48 years that an animated show was nominated for Best Comedy Series, and that was Family Guy. Not since The Flintstones, which I guess was one of them that you mentioned you grew up loving. So symbolically, What did that mean to you? And also, do you believe that there's some bias that should be overcome more frequently with these awards type groups? Because if you talk to people out in the world, they laugh at Family Guy as much as anything. And yet that's not happening every year. Yeah, there's something fundamentally wrong with the system. If there's a show in our lifetime that should have a best comedy on TV Emmy, Mm -hmm. it's The Simpsons. There's a lot of things that are deeply ingrained in our process that we're reluctant to change. Mm-hmm. We in Hollywood are lemmings in a lot of ways. It is a big high school. Yes. We do tend to go with whatever way it seems that we are told to go. If there's something that we are told to like, <laughs> whether it's film or a television yeah. show or whatnot, we tend to fall in line. I kind of take all those things with enthusiasm and reservations at the same time. You know, we all love winning awards. We all love winning Emmys or Oscars or whatever. But it's always sort of tempered with a little bit of awareness that there are so many outside factors that have nothing to do with how good a show is. I won an Emmy for voiceover for some of the worst work I've done in my career. (laughs) (laughs) It was a couple of years ago. Really? Like, this is when you want to give me? Really? I was really trying about five years before that. Well, and nowadays, I think you guys seem to, and I recognize that when we get something from Family Guy, maybe, you know, as you said, it's less totally your baby than it once was. But the last few years, the journalists who cover award stuff and maybe some voters as well, we've gotten some funny communications from you guys. I think the most recent was, we know who the next Me Too person is, right, and you right, open right. it up and there's a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you mentioned The Simpsons. They've been around since 89, South Park since 97, Family Guy since 99. Do you know your 
sort of equivalents at those shows? Are you friends? Is there competitiveness? How do you regard those guys? I don't know Matt and Trey mm-hmm. at all. I, I met Trey once for all of 30 seconds in the lobby of the Emmys one year, but beyond that, I don't know them. Yep. The Simpsons, we have a very warm relationship with. Matt Groening is a friend, and he's the best. Yep. I mean, he's just a really great guy to hang with and just really knows his comedy and just a very kind person. And, you know, they all have Mike Scully from The Simpsons. Uh-huh. Brian Scully, who worked in The Simpsons as well, wound up being a Family Guy writer, and he's hilarious. They're a good bunch. One thing that you've done that I guess these other guys haven't really done is spinoffs and branch outs and offshoots. I mean, American Dad started in 05, Cleveland Show 09. In between there, you had Border Town. Just what motivated that? Did you have a desire to tell other stories, or was there a sense that you needed to, you know, that as the Fox kind of animation guy, you should have multiple things going, or what was that all driven by? Again, it was driven by the idea and the timing. You know, I don't set out to create a show for the sake of creating a show. Mm -hmm. American Dad was created because we thought Family Guy was dead. I didn't intend to have two shows on the air, and for a while it was a huge pain in the ass. Honestly, it's still... In running the Orville or whether I'm right. shooting a TED movie or whatnot, it is still a pain in the ass to record two shows a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's whatever. I'm whining like no, a well, fucking I mean, son I, of a bitch. But uh, it's like <laughs> I didn't set out to do that much. Right. American Dad came about and then Family Guy came back on the right. scene. So suddenly I had two animated shows and I wasn't really sure how I was going to do it. I'm not the type of person who likes to executive produce multiple things piecemeal. I like working. I like right. being there every day focusing on one project. Mm-hmm. And That can take a toll, though. I read you at one point wound up in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah, it was like 15 months without a vacation. And I also had the flu, and I was still coming to work. And that message <laughs> from my it. body, I got loud and clear. <laughs> I've radically changed my process. But, you know, the Cleveland show was something that Mike Henry and Rich Appel really wanted to do, and they're both people that I respect enormously, and I've known Mike since college. Right. One of the most original comedic voices that I've worked with. Right. Mark Henteman, who did Border Town, hugely talented cartoonist and writer. You know, so these people would have these ideas, and they were people whose work I had been the beneficiary of for years and had every reason to support them. In terms of a movie, starting with the first Ted in 2012, the next one was three years later, but was this just... I've done TV, I want to do a movie, or I want to do something specifically that can blend live action with animation or VFX or whatever, or what was the reason? Ted originally was an idea for an animated series. It was going to be Ted and then this father who had had this teddy bear since he was a kid, and now he was an adult and he had a family and he had moved on, but the bear was still with him. So it was more of like a family premise. Right. And somewhere along the line, it became, I actually don't remember. I don't remember at what point I said, wait a minute, maybe this should be a movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it went through so many permutations. We pitched it to 20th. They said, hey, can you do a PG version? We wrote a PG version of the script. Didn't fly. So we went to Universal. Mm -hmm. They said, we like it and we like your R-rated version. Mm -hmm. At one point, we were talking about doing it like Alf, like Ted was going to be a puppet. (laughs) Right. Yeah, eventually it landed at Universal and became what it was. Highest grossing R-rated comedy that is not a sequel or a remake. So I guess uh, points for... Didn't something just knock us off that? Wasn't there some movie that just knocked us off that? We'll have to double check, but... I don't know. I could be wrong. Look at me. Why am I I bringing that up? Yeah, number one. Sure. But directing for a movie, it's got to be like a totally different thing than anything you've done up to that point, right? Obviously, there are pretty basic terms in filmmaking like, oh, that's an over. That's a 50-50. That's a 17 lens. (laughs) 
there are things that had to be explained to me day one. I mean, literally directing a movie. Right. And I had to say to my DP, now what's an over again? So he was the guy you leaned on yeah. the most. And he's like, well, that's when you have a piece of somebody in the foreground and but the shot's really about the person they're right. talking to. So, oh, okay, that's what that is. Yeah. Well, how do you think you convinced them to let you do it? I don't. I, I, just, <laughs> maybe they were drunk. Right, I don't know. It's possible. I think they figured, all right, this is somebody who's smart enough to yeah, figure, figure it out it as out it goes. Right. And, right. and, you know, I, like I could see it in my head. I knew visually what I wanted. The thing that was hard to break myself of is that with animation, everything is storyboarded beforehand. So right. the shot that you have for that particular line of dialogue is the shot. Right. And I had set out to do the movie like that. Like, I don't need multiple pieces of coverage of this. This is the shot I'm right. going to use in the edit. Right. And then quickly learn, like, yeah, in this medium, it's good to have... A little coverage. You know? Yeah. There were certain things in that movie that I did do as oneers that I just said, this is the way it's going to look, and moving on, <laughs> we don't need to get 100 cameras um, on this. So we'll just note, Ted was 2012, Million Ways to Die in the West was 2014, Ted 2, 2015. In the middle of all this in 2013 was something that I was lucky enough to be at, and that was the night you hosted the Oscars, produced by Neil Marin and the late Craig Zaden. Was that something that you had always had on your bucket list, or was it just out of the blue? Was it something you no, was it an immediate was of, yes? That was out of the blue. Yeah, it was an immediate yes. I recognized you know what it could do for me professionally, right? But it wasn't like it was a long term goal. Goal to promote your upcoming appearance. You did the nominations as well, and found out you were nominated at your own announcement of the nominations, which was cool, for the song. But the other thing which happened there, which I know has been a hot topic of discussion recently, was that you made a joke after they announced the five Best Actress nominees, and you said, quote, congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein, close quote. So just to clear it up, did you know something then that the rest of us didn't yet know? The only thing I knew is that a friend of mine had had an encounter with him that was very lascivious. Yeah. That was about it. And had told me the story and, you know, was reluctant to speak out because at the time the fallout from that was still uncertain. We're in a better place now. But I was pissed. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can say, hey, report it, tell somebody, but it's not up to you. It's up to the person who it happened to. Right, right. It's their decision. So, you know, the next best thing is to take a pot shot at the guy in public. (laughs) (laughs) So at the Oscars itself, I thought... You were great. I thought it played great in the room. And I've really been hoping to one day have the chance to ask you about something because I think that there's been a big misunderstanding. Because supposedly the worst thing that you did that night was the song We Saw Your Boobs, which was joking about actresses who we had or in some cases hadn't yet seen topless in movies. People can argue about whether or not they want to have that on the Oscars. But what I think maybe turned some people against you on that was that the way it was presented was you and Shatner are talking about how he knows that you ruined the Oscars and he's going to show you how, right? Now it shows the video of you singing this with what I'm almost positive were pre-taped cutaway shots of reaction that weren't even reacting to anything you were doing. But the viewers at home, by the way it was presented, I think thought these were live reaction shots of actresses actually being offended by what you were saying, and therefore they were offended on their behalf, when in fact I'm looking from my seat. I don't know that the viewers were offended. I think the press was offended. I think it was clickbait. Yeah. I really do. Because I I didn't get that from anyone else. No, and in the audience, I know 
you are friends with and went on to work with Charlie yeah. Theron, well, Jennifer but... Lawrence was there. They're <laughs> yeah. dying. I'm looking. For, I had a seat where I can see how people are reacting. Yeah. Everybody's I mean, laughing. You don't have to be Agatha Christie to sleuth out that they were all wearing different dresses yes. than they were the next time you cut to them. Well, right. But I don't know how much people are even <laughs> paying attention when they're yeah. – I really think they were offended on behalf of the actresses. I think the biggest misconception – and again, this response in the room was very gratifying. Yeah. Like, I loved it. Like yeah. That crowd was great. And the response from viewers that I've connected with and I've talked to has been great. The holdout was in our little Hollywood bubble. You know, look, I'm not alone. Like, there's always something to bitch about after the Oscars. But I think what got lost in the shuffle and what gets a little bit erased from the narrative at this point when it's brought up is that prior to the Oscars, there was actually a relatively old-fashioned, tame opening that I had planned on doing. And the producers said, you know what, we like this, but we kind of want a little bit more of what it is you do on Family Guy. And I had been reading a lot in the press that was, you know, never read your own press. They say, <laughs> but we all do it. That was just people kind of foaming at the mouth in anticipation of what I was going to do to right. the ceremony. It, the subtext would be, oh, I hate him for what I'm sure he's going to do. <laughs> and it was this buildup that almost wanted to be commented on. So right. I thought you've kind of set me up. Right. With your vitriol, <laughs> first of all, nothing's happened yet. The right. show doesn't exist. Right. But you have this frantic idea that something terrible is going to happen. And so I kind of took that and turned it into a premise for the opening. And right. I think what people forget is these things are supposed to be offensive yeah. because they were the manifestation of what in the mind of the media was what was going to happen. Yeah. No, it was. Um, and by the way, they, they that was were, this narrative. That was the structure. And the and that's Academy the was so offended that they invited you to do it again. Right. Yeah. Oh, and they so, were great. I mean, they, no, they, no, they were like, they, <laughs> so anyway. yeah, yeah, it's at about two weeks where I was wringing my hands as to whether it was a plus or a minus to go back and do it that yeah. second year. And, you know, when they called me, I was in Santa Fe doing this Western, and I really didn't want to screw that up. It was my first time acting and directing and writing, and I really wanted to do it right. And I almost said yes, and then I realized I've done this. It's fun. Maybe somewhere down the line, if they ask me again, I'll do it again. But I would really only be doing it to say ha-ha to the detractors. And it's just not a a good enough reason. Maybe the Tonys would be good for you as well. That would be cool. I don't know know, if you'd ever do it. Hosting an award show is, in many ways, it's not a winnable situation. Again, every host has criticism. Yeah. They thought Billy Crystal was too soft. They right. thought I was too harsh. Right. And Neil Patrick Harris should have been perfect right. for them. And I thought he did a masterful job. Yeah. But the next day there was criticism of him too. And it's like, yeah. all right, you guys no, are hopeless. Right. You're hopeless. If this guy can't do it for right. you, there's no saving true. you. All right. I want to make sure that we give time here to a show that I know is as much a passion project for you as anything. This is the Orville on Fox started first season, started rolling out in 2017. Now the second season more recently, obviously a show set 400 years in the future and centered on a captain, you, Ed Mercer, and his first officer who were once married, got divorced, still have to work together aboard the Orville. Were you always itching to do a live action series on TV or an hour long drama specifically or one that it feels like an homage to Star Trek specifically or just where did this come from? I had always wanted to do a show of this type, whether it was comedy or I think I secretly wanted it to be the dramatic show that it eventually became. Yeah. I think there was a little bit of fear of getting traction on that because people expect a certain thing. And one of the pleasant surprises of my career is seeing how ready people are to embrace what I really wanted this thing to be. Yeah. And it's been hugely gratifying. I mean, I went to CBS a couple years prior to that. I just finished TED 2. Uh-huh. And I said, hey, listen, I'm finished. I have nothing on my slate coming up. I haven't decided what I'm going to do next. 
I'd love to do a Star Trek series. I don't know if you guys are doing this for yeah. TV. I pitched to Les Moonves of all yeah. people. <laughs> so if I just waited a little bit. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I love that genre of storytelling. Yeah. I love allegorical science fiction, you know, in the vein of The Twilight Zone and yeah. Star Trek and Black Mirror. It just sounded like a blast, and I just couldn't get traction. So I went back to the drawing board and said, all right, you know, this idea of a captain on the bridge of a spaceship instead of a sailing ship is something that's now kind of a convention. Everybody uses it. Uh -huh. And, you know, it predates Star Trek. They were the first franchise to really bring it into the mainstream in a massive way. But it's, you know, you see it in the 1930s yeah. sci-fi serials. So we just went with that. We're not going to reinvent the wheel there. But the idea was to kind of look more towards MASH than Star Trek right. and see if there's a way to casualize that world and make it feel like these are just people going to work yeah. every day. They're encountering aliens and Jeopardy and political upheaval, but they're just people going to work. Yeah. They're not paragons of nobility. I think both seasons, if you look at the various metrics that you know gauge audience reaction, audience has been very much behind this. The difference between the first season and then the second where there was maybe a substantial gap between maybe a year between the, the two seasons was that now – you know, thought leaders and critics and whatever are starting to come around and say, thought leaders? well, I don't know. I God, mean, whatever, tastemakers, whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like the they, thought leader has arrived, yes. <laughs> but they gave you guys our time because the first season there was a complaint that they need it neatly. Is it a comedy? Is it a yeah. drama? Is it a side? Whatever. Now it seems like you guys have leaned more into the drama, but also people, particularly with the two part episode identity, there are people that are doing think pieces saying, we were really underestimating this. And I think if maybe we can just talk through the prism of that one, that one's being likened to the Star Trek Next Generation two-parter, The Best of Both Worlds. Was that a conscious thing when you were doing it as the idea? To, I mean, to look, that's that's yeah. one of the benchmarks of yeah. sci-fi, yeah. I mean, you know, it's analogous to Family Guy. Family Guy was obviously without The Simpsons, there would be no Family Guy. You know, without All in the Family there'd be no cheers, you know? I mean, it's you learn from your predecessors, you learn from those who come before you, and eventually Family Guy evolved into its own animal. Yep. And, you know, I think this was when the Orville really did the same thing, was that two-part episode, yeah. you know, this idea of a main character who has been duplicitous this whole time, and even the level of cinema that the show has kind of been going for, like our visual effects team, you know, what they did with that, that space battle goes on for eight minutes, yeah. and it's like something out of a feature film. Totally. I mean, it's the craftsmanship of the team is just, they all deserve applause. But it was very gratifying to see that transformation. You know, the initial reviews were certainly, they were harsh, but not unexpected. I had kind of gotten my ass handed to me several times. Why is it that people have their knives out for you? I mean, it seems like you're you know, a nice enough guy. What's the problem? Who the hell knows? I, you know, whenever I, I read a bad review, I comfort myself by recalling the New York Times review of the movie Soul Man. Remember Soul Man? Vaguely, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, <laughs> like 1986, I think it yeah. came out a while ago, but not long enough ago for what it's yeah. about, about a white college student who takes a whole bunch of self-tanner pills, puts on a wig, disguises himself as a black college student to get a scholarship to Harvard. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. This is the premise of the movie. And they... And, yeah. and <laughs> oh my it's like God. a white guy, literally in blackface, with a wig, 
And uh, the New York Times called it a cheerful. <laughs> let me see. Wait a minute. I, you know, I wrote it down because I knew this would come up at some point. That is it, crazy. <laughs> a cheerful frat house version of Tootsie. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like so. Yeah. So, you, you know, never. when I read A.O. Scott's review of Ted 2, I'm like, you know, I'm, I think I'm okay. <laughs> it's like, if that's what it takes to right. get a rave get a from rave. them, then I'm all right. No. Well, so last question, I guess, with regard to Orville, on which you've directed, you've been a writer on most of the episodes, directed the first of each season and several others in season two is this you know for the immediate next few months or years or whatever is this the primary focus i guess the overall deal will somewhat impact what's next right yeah it's too soon to tell what's going to happen there but as of now i had said if i don't see growth in terms of the orville by the end of season two then i'm probably just going to chalk it off you know Uh my bucket list and just leave it at that but it's exceeded my hopes you know as far as that's concerned i mean you know again the audience was with us from day one but you know it's like look we dismiss critics but it's always nice to read good stuff about you from critics i'm not gonna lie like i'm reading all these great reviews of the show which is a relatively new experience for me (laughs) and you know these rave reviews of the second season and it's you know it does feel good and people are really getting they're really digging into the grist of what these stories are because we write it with a lot of care we write it like a streaming series we don't start shooting Mm -hmm until all of our episodes for the season are done. Uh So we make sure that everything is polished and ready to go and nothing feels rushed. And it's great to see that acknowledged. Well, and especially, I mean, it's got all aspects of that. It's probably nice that it's your work is being appreciated in an area that probably nobody even knew you had much desire to work in. This is not animated. This is not voice. This is not music. This is something that came out of the blue for a lot of people. Yeah, you hope that people can smell when you love something. Right. And in this case, they have. You know, I read as much reaction as I can online from fans of this thing because Mm -hmm. it's a pleasure because there's a real proprietary, possessive feeling that people get when it comes to sci-fi and in the way that they do about, you know, their favorite band. Yeah. It's a really kind of special thing. So I do try to read as much of it as I can. And it's exciting because oftentimes people aren't willing to let you make that transition. If you are a comedian who wants to do a drama or a dramatic actor who decides they want to do a comedy... They don't always let you do it. No. Sometimes they'll crucify you for it. But right. here it's been, you know, the initial bump. What the hell is this? <laughs> and people have acknowledged, okay, they're coming at this earnestly and they're really trying to make something great. And if I continue to see this kind of growth for the show, then, I, you know, I don't know how I could do it for a number of years. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate cool. it. Cool. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.